Hello, and welcome to a new Arab Digest podcast season, our fifth. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. We're something of a rarity in Middle East analysis. We have no sponsors, and we carry our podcasts without advertising. As our colleague and podcast contributor, Jim Crane, kindly commented on the Apple Podcast platform, we are a vital and unbiased source. Knowledgeable hosts who take no money from the usual suspects leads to refreshing clarity on difficult questions. Thank you, Jim. If you'd like to support a truly independent voice, will you consider making a small donation? Details at ArabDigest.org. When you go to the website, check out how you can receive our reader-supported daily newsletter for two months for free. That's right, two months for free. My guest today is Renad Mansour. Renad is a senior research fellow, Middle East and North Africa program, and the project director of the Iraq Initiative at London's Chatham House. In November, he'll chair the Iraq Initiative annual conference at Chatham House, and the theme this year is accountability. Renad, great to have you back on the podcast. It's great to be back, Bill. Now, before we get to the issue of accountability, can I ask you, first of all, just to give our listeners a snapshot of the current political situation in Iraq. It's just about a year since Mohammed al-Sadani became prime minister and a national unity cabinet was cobbled together. How is the prime minister doing and, and what can you tell us about his cabinet of national unity? Well, at the moment, you know, almost one year on with this new government in Baghdad, uh, things seem to be uh, somewhat steady. On the surface, they appear to be um, certainly more than people were expecting. Don't forget, it took one year, a whole year for for this government to be formed following the elections. And it came off the back of uh, considerable and significant violence between some of the different groups. But it ended up with this government, as you say, a national unity cabinet in that it has most of the Shia parties. Of course, keep in mind that the Sadrists have withdrawn from parliament and while they maintain a presence throughout the government, they are not technically part of this government. Um, but it also includes the main Kurdish parties, the KDP and PUK, as well as the main Sunni parties. So insofar as, you know, as much as possible, it is a national unity government, minus, some could say, minus on the surface, the Sudjurists. You know, some people were expecting this summer for there to be potentially protests or there to be already anti-government demonstrations. But en masse, we haven't really seen that. Sudani has sort of treated his position and his government almost in a technocratic way, keeping his head down and trying to pursue reform. Of course, he's aided by the fact that the price of oil is 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 high enough for, for him to basically be able to give everyone what they need in a way. And I think that's the best way to understand it is... At the moment, in the current situation, Iraqi politics, most of the major players are getting, to some extent, what, what they need. There are, of course, differences in competitions there. But this has allowed there to be this sort of appearance on the surface of, 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 of stability. But, you know, I'm sure we'll get into discussions. We This is not the first time in the last 20 years in Iraq since regime change. We've seen this kind of, uh, it's almost like an eye of, of, of a storm in some ways of, of stability. Mm-hmm. And and Sidani himself, uh, you mentioned this the technocratic image that he projects. <laughs> to put it crudely, is he in the pocket of any one particular uh, group, or is he able to stand somewhat above the sectarian nature of what is most of Iraqi politics? 
Well, he fits the mold of what the Iraqi prime minister is envisioned or, or what the Iraqi prime minister should be when it comes to the perspectives of the ruling elites that actually govern the system. He's not powerful. He doesn't have political power also, or, or much social power, but he, pre- he he presents a friendly face to the public, he, to, to the people, to the population, to the region, to internationals. And, and critically, he's not someone who is going to go and, and, and against the interests of the elites or the interests of, you know, the, the, those in charge and of, of the system more generally. Technically, he is actually part of the Shia coordination framework, which is a group of Shia Islamist leaders, including uh, even former Prime Minister Nouri al-Maliki, head of Asab al-Haq in Sadiqun, Qais al-Khaz'ali, uh, who is part of the Popular Mobilization Forces, also Hadi al-Amari from the Popular Mobilization Forces. So many of these Shia groupings across the spectrum of Shia Islamists, from Haider Abadi and Omar Hakim to sort of the PMF and, and others that would be closer to Iran, um, and, and Sudani is part of that coalition uh, and comes from that background. And, 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 you know, many of those in that coalition have even publicly stated that they, you know, they, they have a prime minister who they can now gain, you know, reap the rewards and benefits from. And so that's where I would put the prime minister at the moment, even though he has his kind of ambition to, to pursue reform in a very technocratic way to keep, you know, to keep his head down and just muddle through, he's, you know, he's not going to be able uh, or, or willing at times to go against these, these vested elite interests that have uh, grounded the corruption in Iraq for the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, look, let us just talk a little bit about this past summer because Iraq's gone through another very grueling time high temperatures exacerbated by water and electricity shortage crises. How challenging has this past summer been for the ordinary people of Iraq? I think for the past few summers, um, Iraqis have been suffering everything from increased, you know, in their lives, increased uh, sandstorms uh, to very high temperatures in the context where they don't have uh, basic services, electricity to be able to turn, you know, on air conditioners or, or or to have water. Life becomes difficult. And climate is something and the kind of changes in climate is something that Iraqis see every day and feel every day. You know, if, if you drive with anyone or walk along the river, you know, uh, in Baghdad, you see, and, and, and most Iraqis will point out how low the river are, right? And this is a country known as the country of two rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates, both both of which have, you know, the levels have gone so down. If you go to the south of Iraq, you see the marshes, the historic marshes drying up and that leading to people losing their livelihoods um, and, and having to migrate to cities and that creating a whole other host of, of, of complications. Other parts of Iraq, you know, where, where it was the Fertile Crescent, farmers not having as good years for their crops, again, because of climate change. If you go to Kurdistan, for example, in the north of Iraq, you'll see that some of the wildlife is beginning to become extinct or you have more fires because of high temperatures. So I guess these are all different examples in which uh, Iraqis are facing the detrimental impact of climate change. 
And again, important to note all of this accelerated or catalyzed by the fact that the government has that has not been able to put forward a vision, but instead corruption again uh, undermines and impedes any any sort of actionable uh, goals or policies that could be done to make the climate effect less impact you know less of a of, of an everyday reality for Iraqis and this is why you know the UN and others put Iraq right up there at the top of countries most vulnerable to climate change and we've seen these countries with uh, corrupt regimes uh, infrastructure that has not been uh, looked after for decades we've seen the catastrophe that's happening now in Libya uh, these countries are not really well-placed to meet the challenges of, of this very dramatic climate disasters that are hitting them really, really hard. Yeah, these are political systems in which the elites uh, operate with impunity above the rule of law, and they view a large portion of state building as generating their own revenues and rents rather than giving back to the public institutions and making them able to cope or to to manage such disasters. So across the region, we saw in Turkey uh, earlier this year with the earthquake, we're seeing this week, uh, both in Morocco with the earthquake and the floods in Libya, that these, these regimes undermined by these elite bargains and and the political corruption coming out of the political system uh, means that that every day checks and balances, whether it's to ensuring material is is up to standards or ensuring there's even material at all aren't there. And and, and it makes all of these countries and, you know, their people vulnerable and susceptible to uh, the impacts of, of climate change. You're listening to the Arab Digest podcast with me, William Law, and Chatham House's Renad Mansour. Our podcasts have no sponsors and no advertising. We are a truly independent voice on the Middle East and North Africa. Would you like to support that voice? If the answer is yes, please consider making a small donation. Details at ArabDigest.org. Let me ask you about Iran, because Iran has had and continues to have a pernicious hold on Iraq do you see signs that this is in any way weakening? Uh, I think about, uh, you know, uh, Muqtada Sadr pulling back. Uh, I think about the possibility that perhaps this government has some maneuverability with Tehran, or is that just a bit of a fancy and Iran is still in there as as, as tightly as ever? For, for, for Iran, Iraq is about a balancing act, right? Iran does not want Iraq ever to become too powerful or for the Iraqi state to become too coherent because it's still a rival. But it also doesn't want Iraq to be so weak that it could create instability, uh, like we saw when there was no government uh, for, for a whole year, or in, in more dramatic fashion, when we saw when you know the Islamic State took over. Or a third. So in, the, in terms of that balancing act, Iran is constantly having to navigate the political, security, economic networks to make Iraq that mold. And in and, and doing so, it needs allies across the spectrum. Um, and so at the moment, Iran, of course, has very strong relations, especially with the coordination framework, which is leading the government right now. Uh, leaders such as Nouri al-Maliki, Qais al-Khaz'ali have historical relations with Iran. But in general, most of the Shia Islamists who are in power in Iraq right now do have some kind of a historical relationship with Iran, which is a neighbor. 
and also the Kurds. I mean, Pavel Talabani of the PUK was just recently in Tehran. This is the Patriotic Union of Kurdistan. He, you know, he, he's the head of the PUK. So I would say that Iran is still managing and navigating its networks across the country, across the political spectrum, but across the state and non-state divide, across the armed groups, the economic interests, the political interests, to reach that and to maintain that balance. So, you know, to answer your question, I think Iran is still by far the most influential external uh, actor inside Iraq. And you expect that to remain the case for for a good long time to come? It's built on very strong foundations. It's been 20 years now that Iran has had this role and um, it's 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 maintained it at times of crisis and, and, and at better times. And it seems, you know, relative to the other countries we've seen in the last few years, uh, Gulf countries, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, uh, make some sort of inward into Iraq, trying to better, you know, the, the relationships. Turkey, of course, has some relationship, particularly to the, you know, in northern Iraq, uh, in western Iraq. But I think, you know, given the long term focus that Iran has in Iraq, it's it's not a, you know, election cycle uh, issue like it would be for many uh, of, of countries in Europe or, or or the U.S. It's a longer term vision. And I think, you know, we, we, we should expect it to continue as such. Hmm. Well, let me ask you this, Gunad, because as you mentioned, uh, the tensions, particularly between Saudi Arabia and Iran, have eased considerably in diplomatic relations back on, on the table. Do you see a role for the Saudis that could be a benefit to Iraq? Certainly. I mean, and, and you know, the Prime Minister Mohammed Sudani, as well as his predecessors, have, have, have all noted uh, that relations with all sort of countries, especially those bordering Iraq or so close to Iraq, is important. Saudi Arabia is a massive economy, Saudi and and, and, and trading partner, but also a massive, you know, in, in, in the region, a massive player geopolitically. And so Iraq's leaders don't want to be either a pariah state or closed off to 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 these influential and significant countries especially this has developed in the, in 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 the last several years now so there there are benefits to to engagement politically but also economically uh with Saudi Arabia even in the climate space uh with with different initiatives with Saudi Arabia and and and, and the Gulf supporting some development in Iraq but of course this will all be a big political you know a big political balancing act and and at the moment we're still i think at the level of, of of niceties at the kind of diplomatic level of let's all work together the question really becomes when we get into the sort of nitty gritty you know the nuts and bolts of, of what does this look like and whose interest will have to change for there to be a greater role for saudi arabia in Iraq. And I think those are the trickier questions moving forward. So can Saudi Arabia support Iraq on energy? Yes. But what does that mean for Iran, which has a significant stake in Iraq security or sorry, energy sector um, and, and will and will want to keep that? So I would answer your question again. I think there is a benefit to Iraq for sure, but it will come with uh, that type of competition um, between these powers, which would see Iraq as a prize. Okay. Well, look, let us now move on to accountability, which will be the focus of your upcoming Chatham House conference. Accountability, you mentioned corruption. Where does accountability begin when you're trying to deal with this deeply entrenched corruption, the Muhasasa 
it's I kind of look at the picture and I think, oh my God, this is just unsortable. Yeah. I think uh, that many, many would, would agree that the state of corruption in Iraq uh, is so solid, it's so legal that it is the political system, um, which is why, you know, in 2019, with the Tashreen movement, the protesters who, who came out, they weren't protesting against one individual leader or a party, they were protesting against the political system, because they share this diagnosis that corruption, how do you even begin to combat it, right? And every time, you know, we see with every new government that emerges, there is this anti-corruption drive, but anti-corruption is really a political tool. So what the current prime minister Sudani is doing is he's using anti-corruption to go after his predecessor's government, Kalvami, just like Kalvami would go after the previous governments using anti-corruption. Um, but accountability is still important, right? Because Iraqis, are still living in the country and 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 they sort of need some way to make their ends meet you know they need to live their lives they can't just ignore it um so what we sort of are trying to think through especially with you know those who are in Iraq trying to support state building trying to re support reform be that economic security political reform is how to put accountability at, on the agenda Right. And how to put out the agenda from day one. The rulers of Iraq, the elite, took over power in 2003 and they came in with impunity. They came in above the rule of law and they continue to sit above the rule of law, notwithstanding the hundreds of millions spent on so-called reform projects, on on state building, on, uh, you know, all of these peace sort of peacemaking and peacekeeping projects. These rulers have never been touched. Um, and so that's why we think what needs to be on the agenda is this issue of accountability, not only from a legal or a security perspective, but from a more cohesive element, beginning primarily with transparency, right? Um, the Iraqi budget is over $100 billion, and yet we don't see enough electricity. Medicine, as we've discussed in previous uh, podcasts, is, is mainly fake. Basic services, basic essentials aren't being delivered, even though there's so much money. So the beginning has to be, you know, taking the lid off of this and trying to understand how much is being taken away. How much are these ruling elites who sit above the rule of law taking from it and what can be done to hold them to account? And, and this needs to be on the agenda of all international development, all international state building that continue to, to pursue the same types of policies that we've seen have not worked for the last 20 years in, in Iraq. You know, as you said, if it just becomes a kind of uh, political exercise where you, you punish the your predecessor or you sort of march out an anti-corruption drive as, as a gesture, as gesture politics, isn't the risk or not that it just goes on that that list of uh, long list of promises made and promises broken that has marked so much of Iraq since uh, the overthrow of Saddam Hussein? And well, you could argue obviously before that, but certainly since 2003. Yeah. And so so there needs to be specific uh, initiatives to to pursue accountability. You know, in, in, in our work across the country, one thing that's really important for most Iraqis whether they're Shia, Sunni, Kurdish, whatever, most Iraqis are saying they want access to information. Iraq doesn't have an access to information law, for example. Um, and what this would entail, in a way, is greater transparency. 
I've spoken to members of parliament who in the past have sat on the finance committee. You know, this body is meant to interrogate budgets and spending of all ministries. And even they don't have access to, to, to the numbers. They don't know how much each ministry is spending where and which companies are, are, are procuring contracts, uh, from government agencies. And so, I agree. Accountability is a big word. And in the context of Iraq, you know, you, you risk just having it as a policy recommendation without much uh, to enforce. But that's why I think pushing that agenda into the specifics becomes really important through an example like transparency, in instituting a transparency law, creating a budget monitor, right? This would be really, really, I think, helpful. And most Iraqis are calling for, for, for something like this. They just want to know, they, 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 they want to know exactly how much is being stolen, in which ways it's going, because they know at the end of the day, it's not coming to their benefit. And they have every, every right to know. Uh, but let's sort of pull back from the Iraqis and, and look at the international responsibility here. I mean, I'm thinking about the Biden administration beyond its efforts that the Saudis recognize Israel and jump on the Abraham Accords bandwagon. It's pretty much walked away from the Middle East and, and certainly the disaster that it pretty much inflicted on Iraq. Um, is there any chance our government might put a little bit of pressure on Washington and remind them of their responsibilities towards Iraq and, and its people? Or, or do we just let them walk away? Do we let the Americans walk away? Do we just walk away? What, you know, what sort of external political pressure could be brought to bear to achieve some of the things that you're talking about? It's a tricky question because, you know, from, from, from one perspective, we've seen you know, 20 years now of international state building in, in Iraq and, and similar policies being, you you know, implemented that haven't really worked. But at the same time, we see now, as, as you say, a kind of disengagement, you know, let's say from Iraq by countries like the U.S. And if you look at Iraq from afar, there's no civil war at the moment. There's no ISIS or that type of terrorist group. Things seem to be stable. And 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 the elites, okay, corruption is there, but maybe that's not a big problem for, for many of those abroad who, who are most concerned when it is about ISIS or migration or these issues. But we know that we've seen this before, right? Because conflict in a country like Iraq is cyclical. And, and you know, every U.S. president has declared some kind of mission accomplished uh, in Iraq, beginning with George Bush five, six weeks after the initial invasion in 2003, we know that it, it'll come back because the foundations are, are, are not solid, because the state was built on rotten roots. And those rotten roots is that system of corruption, which kills every day in very in, in, in invisible ways uh, through depriving Iraqis of their basic needs uh, and, and, and essentials. I think that's the message that, that that needs to be made clear. You could turn away from this because it seems relatively stable. There's not, you know, uh, direct violence and civil war occurring. But this country, like many other countries in the region, are, are, are based on these elite bargains, are based on coming out of a civil war, but do not have the solid foundations of a coherent state which makes it very vulnerable to things, anything from, as we've discussed today, a natural disaster to the reemergence of, of violence through these types of groups that we've seen in the past. So um, 
we've you know it's i i would sort of answer by saying it's cycles and it's cycles of violence and nothing to there's nothing to suggest that iraq has gone past or reversed or is no longer on that cycle of uh of violence that we've seen since 2003 and it's uh at our peril if we choose to to walk away but look let's not end um or let's not dwell rather entirely on the negatives uh, there are some positives emerging. For example, I was impressed at a Chatham House session that you chaired back in June with young Iraqi entrepreneurs and their startups. Can we look at that part of the landscape? And can you tell us about the challenges, but also about the potential that is there in Iraq? It's an important question, because if you look at most people writing about Iraq right now, writing about the you know the current political situation, most of most of the analysis is saying that Iraq is moving towards a greater authoritarianism, right? Especially in the wake of the October 2019 Tishrini protests, which were completely suppressed, you know, and 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 repressed. Sorry, and you see uh, the judiciary and the police beginning to stown on civil society, clamp down on on you know those we talk about accountability the accountability mechanisms from society from media you know these important tools uh that 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 the public has they 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 have less uh today and so many are concluding that Iraq is moving towards some kind of authoritarian maybe competitive authoritarian state however within that you know as as we've talked about there are still Iraqis who are not giving up Right. They're not leaving. They're not fleeing. But they're saying in our own ways, we're going to push for our interests and the interests of many like us who are marginalized, who are minoritized, who don't benefit from the, the system, from the state. OK, we may not be able to do it in protest because last time we tried, hundreds of us were killed and tens of thousands of us were uh, injured and wounded. But there are many spaces where we want to have a say. And we're seeing, as you mentioned, a lot of these you know, young Iraqis hoping for a better future, working in spaces like technology, like business, like climate and NGOs and other parts of civil society, basically practicing everyday politics in very different forms that um, isn't only a protest. So if if we're looking at Iraq from abroad and we see, okay, the protests have been suppressed, so there's authoritarianism, that might be true, but let's not discount the many Iraqis who every day practice different forms of political resistance to the system, uh, trying for a better future for themselves. Mm. Yeah, and part of that resistance is simply setting up your own company getting through all the bureaucracy having to deal with uh, the state and all the and all the negative things coming through that determined to to have an income to support your family to commit to the country and i think you make a really important point these are young iraqis who are saying no we're not going to leave we're going to stay and we're going to work our way through this through persistence through determination through sheer energy and intelligence and that's really where you know you must look at that and say, hey, there is some hope here. The landscape isn't all bleak. Yes, I mean, they have hope. I mean, they have they have more hope than many people outside looking at the country, right? They're, they, they're there every day. They see the every day. They see and take advantage of pockets of, of opportunity that might arise. They're constantly trying to lift 
to kind of gain more opportunities to do more uh and 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 they have no other choice really right they're not fleeing and to them this is their country this is the country that they're going to bring their families up in and this is the country that okay for the last 40 years have had different types of war but they're you know they're they're, they're not ready quite yet to 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 give up on it Good and I and I know you are not either or not. So I'm looking forward to that conference coming up in November. And I thank you for our conversation today. Thanks so much, Bill. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Renad Mansour, a senior research fellow, Middle East and North Africa program, and the project director of the Iraq Initiative at London's Chatham House. I hope you're enjoying the Arab Digest podcast. Since our launch in 2020, it's been listened to nearly 175,000 times in countries right around the world. So a big thank you to all our listeners. You may have noticed that we bring you the podcast with no advertising and no sponsors. We are a truly independent source for analysis and commentary on the Middle East and North Africa. Will you consider supporting our independent voice through a small donation? Details on how to do so at ArabDigest.org. When you go to our website... You can also find out about our reader-supported daily newsletter and how to get a free two-month trial. The newsletter features the very best of MENA analysts and commentators, contributors like Renad. Check us out on ArabDigest.org. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And search our library of more than 180 podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, SoundCloud, or Amazon. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading, essential listening from independent sources.